How's everyone doing? Good. We're just going to take a moment right now to pray for um, the Kwok family. Uh, Van's, I think, grandfather? Father. No, father. I couldn't. Father passed away in, the, in America just recently, and um, just last week. And so they're obviously in a place of grieving and, and loss. So just pray for them and in support. And if you could encourage you to pray, they're having a memorial service here in, in Adelaide this afternoon. Pray for the family and uh, really stand by them in this time because it's never easy. So let's pray. Lord God, we just bring Min and Van to you right now and the whole family. It's never easy to lose someone, no matter who they are, but uh, our parents are especially difficult as we'll miss them and, and they've inputted so much into our lives. And we just pray for Van, especially right now, that you'd be her comfort and her peace and her strength in this time, that you would come and let her know peace that surpasses understanding, knowing that her father is with you and, and uh, in your arms, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I was going to mention about the marriage course. Uh, as we've been asked over the years, my wife and I, and we've always been reluctant to do one, and our kids say, why are you doing a marriage course? Your marriage is a wreck. And that's probably the perfect reason. Um, no, it's... Uh, the fact is, uh, people have often said, we'd love to hear from you guys about marriage and how you guys have raised a family and, and uh, had a, a good marriage for so long, uh, 29 years this year. And so, um, yeah. And so we sort of have been reluctant to do it, but we thought, no, it's the right time. And so that's what we're doing in... Um, in when is it? August? <laughs> term three. Term three. Three. Yeah, term three. Um, and it's every fortnight on a Sunday afternoon between three and five. There will be, uh, Juanita will be running a children's program at the same time, um, looking after any kids, because we want to encourage as many um, couples to come along. And it's, we're going to be covering, it's going to be very relaxed. It's, it's like us, very relaxed. Or it might be a bit intense when Julie gets up to share. But other than that, it'll be relaxed. Um, but it, it'll be, you won't have to share in public about your marriage or anything like that. You'll have your own little table and a lot of little nibblies on it and things you can enjoy. It'll be very romantic. We'll dim the lights and, and, uh, and it'll just be a, a, nice, a nice afternoon of encouragement and building each other up or building as a couple building each other up and really uh yeah it's that sort of thing so we don't like about oh i'm getting mixed up now um about four or five years ago we did a marriage course and we'd been married for 25 odd years at that time but we you never can stop learning you never can stop finding things out and discovering things about your partner. I remember discovering things on that marriage course that weekend that I did not realise. And that's after being married for 25 years. And so I'd encourage any couple, whether you've been married 50 years, we've got um, 
Bill and Lorraine, who've been married 57 years, and they're coming. And uh, yeah, uh, and it, maybe you've been married two years, who knows? Um, I'd encourage you to come and be a part of it. No cost, it's all free. It's, uh, and your kids even get looked after. How good's that? Talking about kids, we should congratulate Jess and Ryan because they're bringing number two into the world. Max is going to be a big brother. That's pretty cool. So, you know, one was easy. You're in for it with two. <laughs> and then three, you don't even notice they're there. Isn't that right? What's our third one? What's our, what's our third? Oh, thanks. He never knew any of them were there. Gee. Gee. <laughs> she, she fooled me. She was bringing me a glass of water. I thought, oh my. Gee. It's, uh, how are you, Benito? You're number three. Yeah. I, I did notice him when he turned about 12 or 13. Started playing footy. And he became of some value. Is that, it's, yeah. All right, let's pray and let's get around the word. It's interesting what I'm going to talk about today, so I should probably be speaking to myself right now. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the family that is the church. We are, are so blessed to be a part of your family and to be your children. And we just pray that today around the word that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would transform us into more of the likeness of your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who remembers what our topic is at the moment? That's a tricky one. Faith practices. Well done, David. You know, I was at a conference yesterday, and guess what the topic was that the keynote speaker talked about? Faith practices. So we must be on to something right now. And he said something really interesting that um, sort of encouraged me is that it's described as a faith practice. And who knows that when you uh, want, want to be good at something, you have to practice. You might want to learn to play piano. And um, our, our kids, Julie, obviously can play piano and sing. And when Jack wanted to learn and Emma... Um, she would be hard on them about you must practice. If you want to be good at playing an instrument, you must practice. She says that to Damien all the time when he's playing bass in the band. Have you practiced this week, Damien? And he says no. Yeah. But practice makes perfect. Practice, and this is what a faith practice is about. It's about something we do again and again and again, and we keep doing it. And, and as we keep doing it, we grow closer to God and we become more like him, if that makes sense. Become more like Jesus. And, and this is what faith, faith practices are all about. Our key text is in 1 Peter 3, 8 to 11, which says, Finally, all of you should be of one mind. As we talked a couple of weeks ago about unity. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted, as Benito shared last week. 
and keep our keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing. For the scripture says, If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Today, we're going to look at the faith practice of our speech. As it says here, if you want to enjoy life, who's in for that? Anyone want to enjoy life here? And see many happy days. Keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. This is really important for us to understand because many of us would know that words are powerful. Isn't that right? All of us here would understand that words have had a powerful effect in our own lives. Some of us have experienced the powerful effect of negative words. And we've lived with that for our our whole lives. There's others of us who can remember encouraging words that you have received or encouragements. I remember when I was in year 10, uh, I wrote an essay and the year 10 teacher said to me, you've got a knack with words. You're really good at expressing what is being... And that has stayed with me, that encouragement. She was my favourite teacher ever. But that that encouragement was something that motivated me to think, oh, I can do something well. I, I, I love that. But it's really interesting in our modern world, in the world we live in today, sometimes words can become very commonplace. We, we have so many words. Words are bombarded at us on billboards and, and through media and social media. Words uh, are so common that they can become or, or we can take them for granted. The, the reality is when these verses were written, very few people in that time could read and write. And so... People revered words. They treated them very carefully. They say that the Jewish language has not very many words because every word is sacred. Because as we understand and as the Bible teaches us, God spoke the world into being. And that words have a powerful creative effect. And this is what the Bible talks about continually the significance of words, the power of words. And this narrative runs throughout the Bible and it begins there in the beginning right in chapter 1 of the Bible, Genesis 1, where it says, and God spoke and everything came into being. This is the power of words. And this is why in in this day and age we must reflect upon that and think about how important words really are. Because I think sometimes we can treat them very flippantly and take for granted how powerful they can be. I want us to have a look at some, and just quickly, some verses that describe the power of words from the, from the Bible. Proverbs 13.3 says, Those who control their tongue will have a long life. Wow. Those who control their tongue will have a long life. Opening your mouth can ruin 
everything. I'll leave that with you. Ponder, Sila, think about that. James 1.26 says, If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Proverbs 18 to 21. This we, many of us would know this passage. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now when Jesus talked about our tongue and our language and our words, it was really interesting when he was here on earth and he would preach about your language and your words, he made a very interesting correlation. He described the fact that our words were the product of what was in our hearts. And this is what he was basically saying is that your words are the fruit of what's going on in your heart. Let's have a look at a couple of times when Jesus talked about this. Matthew 12, 34 to 35. It says, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? He was talking to the Pharisees at this time. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. And then in Luke 6.45, he says, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil out of the evil stored in his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Another translation says it like this. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now for us to understand what Jesus is talking about, we need to have a look at the way the ancient people interpreted the concept of heart. This is really important because for us today, when we think of heart, what do we think of? We think of our emotions. That if you give someone your heart, you give them your love and your, you feel you feel all fluttery inside and, and all nice and, and it's all about our emotions and stuff. But for the Jew and for ancient people, the heart was far much more than this. I've talked about this last year, and, but I want to refresh your memory because for the Jews, the, the word for heart was a word uh, that they called labab. And what labab meant is that it was the center of a person's emotions, their mind, their will, uh, and their physical body. You see, the Jews, when they looked at people, they did not separate them into all different parts, but they saw them as a whole part. And so when they described heart, they, it encompassed all of these parts. It didn't just encompass the emotions, but it encompassed their physical nature it encompassed their spiritual nature it encompassed every part of their life their mind will and emotions so when when the jews talked about heart the best way we can describe it as is the seat of a man's collective energies and the focus of their life so the heart was what they would say the place or the seat where their whole life flowed from 
Now, the Greeks weren't very different. They, their word for heart was cardia, which we get the, the word cardiac from. And the, the, the translators tell us that cardia is defined as the centre and seat of thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes and endeavours. So that basically means everything. So when you're talking about heart, it, what the way they describe it and the way the Bible literally translates it is it's described as the fountain from where all life comes out of. And so our heart is that place, if you want to take it a little bit deeper, is that the heart is like a throne room. And the heart is our throne. And who knows that what happens in the throne room in a kingdom is what determines what the kingdom is like. So whoever sits on the throne determines what sort of kingdom that kingdom will be. If you have a good king, then you will have a healthy and prosperous kingdom. But if you have an evil king, you will have a terrible kind of kingdom. And this is what Jesus is alluding to when he says, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, in our world, in the modern world, our world's all about mind over heart. Isn't that right? People who are moved by their heart are, are sometimes um, put down because it's all about being logical and thinking things through and, and the mind is the thing we elevate over everything else. Whereas in this time that Jesus is talking about, he's talking about the heart or the collective person. He's including the mind, the will, and the emotions. So if we put these two words together, or the cardia and labab, this is the idea that we get, the throne room. And so when Jesus is saying, he's saying exactly this. He's saying, if you have good in your heart, if you have good sitting on the throne of your heart, you will do good. But if evil is sitting on the throne of your heart, you will do evil. So let's think about this a bit deeper. It's not about the person that's the issue. It's about who or what is ruling the person's life. So if we allow sin to sit on the throne of our heart, then the fruit of that is sin, destruction, all of those sorts of things. But if we allow Jesus to sit on the throne of our heart, then it makes sense that from him will flow the goodness of all things. Let me give you a biblical example of this. Someone in the Bible who shows what it looks like when God sits on the throne of your heart and how it affects your speech, how it affects the way you talk and the language that you use. And the person I want to look at is David. I'm not going to say King David, I'm going to say David before he became king. And in 1 Samuel 17, we have the story of David and Goliath. Anyone like that story? We all love it. David comes in, little guy, slays Goliath, big guy, with just a stone, right in the forehead. He falls, chops his head off, holds it up. Yay, I won. Everyone know that story? Great story. And we often talk about it from the point of view as, with God you can do anything. Isn't that right? But I want us to have a look at David. Because when, when David comes into this story, it's about verse 26. He, he's come into this situation where the, 
the army of Israel is standing on one side of the valley and every day this man Goliath would come out and he would taunt them. And they were scared, whatever. They were very afraid. And they, they, they were terrified by this man. And the king had said, if anyone wants to take him on for us, I'll give you my daughter, I'll give you half my kingdom, I'll give you whatever you want. Basically, and, and they're all going, no way, because this guy will kill us. And David rocks up to this scene. Now, if you understand, David's at this point, he's just a young man. He's a shepherd boy for his father. His father's asked him to run an errand to his brothers to give them some food. And he sees this Goliath. And he looks at him and he said, what's going on here? Why are you letting this guy do this? And I want to I show you, I want us to read some passages of David's speech. And I want you to get a hold of the way he talks. And as you look at the way he talks, you'll see what the focus of his speech is. And as he talks, you'll see what it looks like for someone who has God sitting on the throne of their heart the type of language that comes out of their mouth. It says here, in, this is 1 Samuel 17, verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, so this is when he's first seen Goliath, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Straight away, David brings God into the picture. Until this point, it's only talked about how afraid everyone is. But David walks into this situation and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of God? And then in verse 37, and he's talking to the king now. He's got an audience with King Saul because he said, I want to take this guy on. And so Saul is like saying you're crazy but what it, why would you want to do this and this is his answer to Saul and he says the Lord so straight away God is first and foremost in his language the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine and then in verse 45 to 47 this is when he faces Goliath this is his language he says to Goliath Goliath just put him down and said, you know, why would you, why, why have you sent this dog out to fight me, sort of thing. And so this is what David says back to him. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole earth will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Over and over again, David talks about God. God is first and foremost in his focus. God is everything that motivates and drives him. 
as a little shepherd boy in the in the back blocks of Israel looking after sheep lions and bears would come and try to steal sheep and he would fight them because he knew God was with him and, and he had developed this place where his heart was clearly God's heart because his language reflected where his heart was at the Bible explains and we all know this but the Bible explains that David was able to speak like this because it describes him as a man after God's own heart. Anyone heard that? What does that mean? What does it mean that David is a man after God's own heart? In my simple translation is that David's heart is God's heart. It's as simple as it is. And when our heart is God's heart, this is the type of way we speak. This is with the faith that we speak because we know God is for us. He is not against us. And herein lies the challenge. Do our words reflect who rules our heart? Do our words, it's a moment to think about, do our words, do the way I speak reflect who rules my heart? Are we speaking in a way that honours God and a way that shows that we're practising godly-centred speech? I want us to have a look at this a bit deeper, this practice of godly speech, this practice of speaking as God would want us to speak. And I... I want us to have a look at Colossians 4, 6, because what does it mean to have a practice of godly speech? It says in Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Grace should always define the speech of followers of Jesus. The way we relate to it, each other should always be seasoned by God's grace. If we're not being gracious to each other, then to put it simply, we are not honouring the grace we have received from God himself. That's why it's so important for us to show gracious, gracious speech towards one another. Ephesians 4.29 says, Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Often we read this verse and we read, don't use foul or abusive language. And we go, oh, that's all right. I don't swear. I'm okay. I'm a good Christian. I don't swear. Uh, I don't use abusive language. I'm okay. Maybe occasionally when I'm at the footy and the umpires get it wrong. But most of the time I'm pretty good. And so we're like, I'm a good I've got good godly speech. And we stop there. Let me say this. The verse doesn't stop there. Because I've met a lot of good Christians who don't swear, but they also don't let everything they say be good and helpful and that their words would be an encouragement to those who hear them. I hear a lot of people who don't swear, but they're very critical of other people. They're very quick to pull people down if they do something wrong. 
They're very quick to judge. And, and then their words aren't good. Does that make sense? So let's not just take part of the scripture and go, I can, I can stop swearing, but then continue to speak negativity and criticism and, and pulling people down because that's not what God wants. He says, let everything, not just when you're in church, oh, brother, you're a good guy, I love you, you're wonderful, you've done so, and then walk away and go, oh, yeah. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. As our mothers told us, if you have nothing good to say, then say nothing at all. We must aim to show the world we live in through our speech who sits on the throne of our lives. The truth is if self sits on the throne of our lives, then our life will reflect selfish speech. It will be all about us. If sin sits on the throne of our life, then it will be all about sin. But if Jesus sits on the throne of our lives, then it makes sense that we will be driven by his love and care for people. That that will be what defines our speech. The truth is, our words show the world around us who is sitting, sitting on the throne of our hearts. As Jesus says, out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. Psalm 141 verse 3. Let's go a bit deeper again. Take it another step. The psalmist says here, Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over my lips. This is the prayer of the psalmist. God, set a guard over my mouth. Watch over the door of my lips. It's really interesting. Our mouth, like our eyes and our ears, are doorways into our life. Jesus talked about our eye being the window to the soul. And our ears are critical. In James, it talks about listen twice as much as you speak. Uh, but the interesting thing is that our eyes and our ears receive stuff uh, and, or see stuff, but our mouth is the only one that speaks out stuff. It's a two-way door, whereas our eyes and our ears are a one-way door. It's all about what's coming in. But our mouth also includes what's going out. So what comes into our mouth is important, but what comes out of our mouth is what will define us. This passage that we're reading here is the challenge for us to allow God to guard our mouths, to allow God to be Lord of our mouths, to allow him to rule from and through our mouths. It's a, a big challenge. James 4.11 says this, Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticise and judge each other, then you are criticising and judging God's law. 
But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. Now, that's, there's a lot to unpack there, but I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the Message Bible. And it brings it down to our level and makes it make sense. Think of this as we're talking about it from the idea that our heart is the throne room of our life. And he says here, don't badmouth each other, friends. It's God's word, his message, his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk. So what he's basically saying is if we as Christians are criticising and backbiting each other, then what it's doing is giving a very poor reflection of God's word to the world around us. Then he says, you're supposed to be honouring the message, not writing graffiti all over it. God is in charge of deciding human destiny, including our lives. Who do you think you are to meddle in the destiny of others? As I said earlier, our mouths are a two-way door. We must be careful what comes out of it, but we also need to remember that we are a product of what we eat. Isn't that right? Jesus made this very clear when he was being tempted in Matthew by, the, by Satan, where he said these words when Satan tried to tempt him by giving him bread after he'd been fasting 40 days. And he said these very clear words, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What Jesus is telling us is that God's word is food for our lives. And God's word is what should fuel our relationship with God. It's through God's word that our relationship with God grows and becomes stronger. If you want your words to be life-giving and renewing and restoring and reconciling to the world around us, then it makes sense that you need to fill yourself with God's words. Does that make sense? What's God's word? The Bible. The word of God. That's what we have today. The Bible. So as we allow the Bible to nourish us and feed us, then it makes sense that as the Bible, as we consume it, that it will start to outwork itself in our lives. The Bible is not just a book of rules. It's not just a whole lot of laws. It's food for our souls. It's food for our lives. I remember when I was a young boy hearing a preacher talk about what he did, he got a Bible and he put it under a hat and he, he got ex- all excited and animated. And he's going, it's alive, it's alive. And then everyone's going, what are you talking about? And he goes, he lifts his hat off. It's alive. The word of God is alive. It's life changing. It's transforming. And we must remember that. Sometimes we can read the Bible as if it's just a book. But we need to understand that within that book is life. Life for our souls, life for our hearts. It's fuel that we consume that then outworks itself in our lives. God's word gives us a standard for how we are to live our lives 
and how we are to speak. It was really interesting uh, last week after Benito shared. Everyone enjoyed the message, isn't that right? It was a good message. But so many people came up to me after and said, oh, he's a chip off the old block, isn't he? You can tell he's your son. As, uh, Bill, was, he loves saying this. He goes, if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. And, uh, and it makes sense. Benito's grown up with me. He's lived with me his whole life. And it, I would be disappointed if he wasn't like me. Does that make sense? It, it makes sense that he has my mannerisms and he talks like me and, and, and looks like me. That's the way it should be. But as he has lived with me, and he, there's a bit of Julie in him too. There's a, <laughs> the good bits. But obviously all of our kids, like one of the things that I love about my wife is that she um, is very funny. But, uh, yeah, you are. But when she laughs, it's one of the things that sometimes reminds me of where she's come from is her laugh. Because when she laughs, she laughs like her mum and her sister. And... <laughs> She has, and, and yeah. <laughs> and sometimes that can be really positive, but also sometimes it can be really negative. But the reality is, she is a product of her environment that she grew up in. As she lived with her family, that's what she looks like. And who's ever seen that? You meet someone's brother or sister and you go, your mannerisms are so similar. The concept here is that the closer we are to God, the closer we are to Him, the more we will become like Him. But here is the challenge, is that God has given us His Word to transform us into the image of His Son. The way we become more like God is by consuming the Word of God. If you want your speech to be godly speech, then the way you produce godly speech is not going, oh, please help me speak properly. No, the way you produce godly speech is by consuming God's word. I want to finish with just this scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Where it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to read it for you again, but this time in the New Living Translation, because it makes it come alive a bit more. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realise what is wrong in our lives as well. So if you want to be challenged and corrected, allow the Word of God to be a mirror in your life. That as you read it, you go, oh, there's something that needs to change. Just like I read that scripture before about good speech, speaking in a way that is good and encouraging to people. When we read that, we can't just put that aside. We go, God, allow that to help me 
be less critical of others. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So when you read God's word and you read about the fact that God calls us to love each other as he, he has loved us, then we go, God, help me. Let your word transform me. Help me to love like you love. And this is the thing. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. If we're going to be the children of God here on earth, it's not just going to happen. It comes by practicing. And you practice good speech by allowing God, by consuming God's speech, consuming God's word, and allowing that to transform you from the inside out. That when God's word transforms us, it has to come out. As simply as they say, you are what you eat. So if you want your out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Invite God to transform your heart through his word and you'll see your speech change. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. As you say in Timothy, it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God, we come to you today as a congregation and as individuals and acknowledge our speech is not always right, that sometimes it's wrong. We acknowledge that today, God, and we pray, help us do what is right. Help us consume your word in such a way that it transforms us into all you've called us to be so that we can reflect to this world what someone who has you sitting on the throne of their hearts looks like. That we won't be ruled by self or sin, but we would be ruled by you, the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And that your salvation and your forgiveness would flow out of our lives to the world around us. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless.